This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On today's podcast, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that ran into hidden logistic costs and what he recommends you look out for. In this episode, you'll learn how to approach your personal network to promote your products, why the hidden costs of logistics are especially dangerous, and why you should figure out how much it costs your manufacturer to produce your products. Today, I'm joined by Vlad Dragushin from CandyLabToys.com. CandyLab Toys manufactures and sells throwback wood toys made from solid wood and inspired by vintage cars. It was started in 2013 and based out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Vlad. Thank you very much, Felix. I'm glad to be here. Cool. So tell us a little bit more about your story and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? So uh, the story is that <clears throat> I'm a parent. I'm, um, my background is in architecture. I'm a registered architect. I, I love design. I love that era of the 60s and the American car culture. So sort of one thing led to another. And together with a friend of mine, we started prototyping and creating these toys about actually four years ago. Um, so that's how the sort of the, the idea started. And then things kind of grew organically from there. And now we, um, we're in a position to have about 12 SKUs um, plus some other various limited editions that we're doing. And um, um, popularity-wise, uh, we, we launched last year um, a little woody wagon with a surfboard on top. And that has been um, by far the most popular um, model that we've uh, created. It clearly struck a chord with, uh, with folks. So you said that you have an architecture, sorry, you said architecture background? That's correct. I, I'm a registered architect in the state of New York, yes. Awesome. So what, what made you decide to say, hey, let me try creating these, um, these you know, toy cars? Like what was the, and did you think that was become a business or you were just doing it just as a hobby at the time? Or what was the, uh, I guess, uh, pre-business days like? <laughs> so we, um, my wife and I, we always wanted to, to, to sort of create something in the toy arena since we became parents. Um, on a personal level, I've always been involved in product design through my job, um, mostly furniture. Um, that's, that's sort of related to, to, to my profession. Um, and no, I didn't have any background in actual consumer products before, which is why I would never thought about doing this. But um, we did think of these designs and um, we did notice that in terms of wood toys, especially wood toy vehicles, um, there was very little offer, actually not much that I could think of, um, in terms of toys that would cater to slightly older kids, like not a two-year-old, not a one-year-old, because I think the market is extremely well covered with great products in that area. Um, so once we noticed that, we couldn't quite get it out of our heads. Um, and then we just kind of put two and two together. We're like, oh, we have this idea, we have these designs, we have this passion about mid-century and uh, American car culture. Um, and we think there's a gap in the market in that 
area. So let's let's kind of sort of tiptoe into starting a business about that. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to create these toys. You you had a feeling that there was a gap in the marketplace for you guys to come in. How did you know that other were you able to validate that that, that I guess that assumption that other parents or kids wanted to buy a product like this? <laughs> That's a very good question. So at first no, we didn't validate any of that. We were simply making something that we believed in mm-hmm. strongly. So again, the the validation was a circle of four people. Um, but then we started showing the prototypes. Once we actually had the prototypes in hand, uh, we started showing them to close friends, to family, little boys, younger boys, older boys. And we were quite surprised by their reaction in a really good way. Um, I can't ever forget this dinner party that we went to, um, our friends have two boys, uh, they were nine and 12 at the time, way above the age range that we thought would be appropriate for, you know, solid wood toys. Um, we kind of put them on a coffee table to the side to test their reaction and we let them in the room and they, they did a double take when they noticed them. Uh, it was a purple one. It was the yellow stinger and it was an orange GT, very bright colors. Uh, so, so from the moment they laid eye, eyes on them, they they were kind of constantly hovering over, like don't don't touch them, they're prototypes. Um, <laughs> but uh, we we noticed the effect it had on them. So at that moment, it kind of crystallized into saying, you know, there might be a market for this. Um, so everything else uh, that we've been doing since is with that belief uh, in mind. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably, you know, you say, you say you didn't validate necessarily, but I think it's probably one of the best ways to validate is to put your product, prototype, your product in front of potential customers and actually see their reaction to it because you can't really do that online. You can't put up a product and then see what, someone's faces looking like what it looks like when they see your product or what kind of questions they have or how they interact with it. Like all those things are super valuable and you wouldn't be able to get that unless you validate it in person. So I think you did do, you know, a, a very valid form of validation. And, and I think it's, um, I think, uh, you definitely, you know, you touched on something that is important for other, I think listeners out there is that you don't have to necessarily validate online, which you did, which we'll get into in a, in a bit. Um, but it's definitely possible just with your circle of friends or people that you think are in your, that are your target customers. So you said that you saw, you saw that they were very interested in the product in person. You definitely now, I guess, felt that it was a, a potential business. Uh, what was next? Like, what 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 did you? What was the next step after you realized that you guys liked it? You know, you and your family liked it, and your friends liked it, and their kids liked it. What did you do next? So we set out to figure out the manufacturing and the economics um, of it. <clears throat> Again, we we had no prior experience in any type of mass manufacturing. Um, I had some product design experience, but from product design to successful product, as I've learned the hard way sometimes in the last few years, uh, there's a really long way. So the next step for us was find a manufacturer and figure out the um, sort of financing uh, portion, you know, basics purchase your first factory order, sell it at a profit, figure out what that is, reinvest more profit in, in a very simplistic kind of way, right? Because we, we don't have any business background in a formal kind of way. Um, so we hit our first hurdle. Um, we've looked um, everywhere from Portland to South Carolina looking for a manufacturer. In the U.S., of course, we never even dreamed, dreamt of going overseas. And um, it took us about... 12 months 
um, of sending a request for proposals, drawings, uh, signing NDAs, everything that entails convincing a manufacturer to take your product on. And we had two requests. <laughs> One was uh, completely unfeasible economically. It was, I don't even remember, it was like something about $50 to make one toy in an order of a thousand. Wow. And uh, I know. And um, the other one kind of fizzled along the way because they said they could do the woodworking part, but they can't um, apply the painting and the decals because it was very labor intensive. I can talk at length about that, but that was a pretty sobering lesson and the first one in, in mass manufacturing. Yeah, let's get into that in a second. So I want to talk about the economics part because I think this is um, a step that, that that any new entrepreneur, any new store owner, you know, it kind of needs to take because you got to make sure that it's actually going to be uh, viable before you dive into it. And so it sounds like you took a pretty simple approach to it, which I, I think that you should, you know, at, at, at a minimum, you should take a, a simple approach to figuring out if it's going to be worth it or not. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your process to figure out if it was going to be worth your time economically to invest in this business? Sure, absolutely. So speaking about validation, um, once we figure out that we want to do the product, then we really started uh, pushing on the price sort of cost side. So a lot of informal, again, <clears throat> we would show up at a barbecue with some of these prototypes. We would put them on a table. People would be kind of fawning over them. Oh, these are great. And then <laughs> we would ask the question, how much would you pay for it in a store? And uh, we kept asking this question, and uh, we came up with what we thought would be a, a sort of ideal price range that would not put you outside of the reach of a lot of people. And by the way, there's a lot to talk here about how to set your pricing. Uh, there's many um, variables and perceptions and um, factors that come into setting well, would be acceptable to a customer, right? Uh, but once we came up with that number, and it was in the low 30s, high 20s maybe, um, that's when we kind of started working backwards uh, to what it would have to cost to make one. Uh, and once we, we reached that point, um, it pretty much would tell you what options you have in terms of manufacturing. Um, I started calculating, you know, in a very precise kind of way, how much lumber it would be required, what, it, what would be the cost of a footboard of solid beach in, let's say, Michigan. Um, the labor involved in minutes to cut uh, a toy. Wow. I mean, it, it, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's academic, obviously, unless you really try it out. But you kind of have to have an idea of the manufacturing process, which means you have to do it yourself first, I think. I think that goes from an Etsy, small-scale craftsperson to you know, uh, GM manufacturing cars. Everybody has to know what it takes to make their own product. Yeah, that, that's, that's important. I want to touch on this a little bit more because you're, you know, I think you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs about manufacturing and the cost involved, they think about how much the manufacturer is charging them. But you're saying go beyond that and figure out how much it costs the manufacturer to, to, to do their part. Is that what you're getting at? 
I, I, I am in, in some sort of sense. I think there's some limitations to that, but I think <clears throat> you can always take a, a sort of a backseat approach. You, you put some drawings together, you send these to some manufacturing agents overseas, and they're going to come back to you with the price, with the minimum quantity, and you wire the money, and you have a product in your warehouse if everything goes well, according to plan, in the next few months. So there's definitely that option. I And I don't take that lightly because it means a lot of um, hassles and headaches avoided. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for us, we, we haven't been able to take this easy route. Uh, we just couldn't find somebody that would do everything sort of, you know, soup to nuts and give mm-hmm. us a finished packaged product. So we had to, um, to go into identifying each supplier and we actually had to go and teach our suppliers how to make some of these woodcuts. Um, and this will, will often happen if you, if you design or if you create something that's relatively new into your market, which, by the way, I'm a strong advocate of, like, don't reinvent the wheel, don't crank out more of the stuff that already exists. Um, and I think in this situation, it will be extremely valuable for you as an entrepreneur and designer and creator of the product to really know what you're talking about in terms of creating this product and what it takes. You may not have all the answers from a technological or manufacturing processing standpoint, but at least you can ask the right questions and you can push your your uh, partners in the right direction. Mm, yeah, there's this idea of having um, some almost like street cred in when you come and talk to the manufacturer when you know your when you know their numbers or you know what's involved. It definitely helps you make a decision and you know in some cases avoid them kind of. Pulling one, pulling one over you if you know the numbers as well, know what's involved. So I can definitely see see value in that side of things as well. So before we dive any deeper into his manufacturing side, I want to go back to something you said earlier about pricing. So the way that you figured out the pricing was that you would just ask the the um, people that you're presenting the prototypes to. You were asking them how much would they uh, pay for a product like this. You settle between twenty to thirty dollars, um, and is that I mean I'm looking at the site now and yeah the prices range exactly that between twenty four ninety nine to thirty four ninety nine and did you ever have to reconsider the pricing because you know you're saying that you spent twelve months trying to find a manufacturer and then the economics just weren't working out did you ever think like man maybe we should just raise the price to make this work out for us did that ever come up yes it did um, in um, in the early stages of launching this. Um, when we started our product line by Kickstarter, different story, we had two price points, 30 and $35. We, we took our product post Kickstarter, by the way. So the product is already validated. We did, we did well on that platform. And then we took a booth at the New York Toy Fair, um, in 2014, uh, beginning of the year when it usually happens. And we basically displayed our products. We, we didn't have any expectations. We just kind of wanted to tell the world about it. Hey, we're here. We're new. Check it out. And the reaction was, for the most part, was, hey, these are great, but I could never sell them for that price point. And the Toy Fair is a business-to-business event, right? So you're mm-hmm. talking to shop owners uh, in what is otherwise a pretty old-school type of uh, business environment and um, by the way, now I'm contrasting that with the world of Shopify and e-commerce. 
<laughs> so um, everybody was because you you, you utilize uh, wholesale pricing. Um, most people use what's called Keystone, which is half the suggested retail. Uh, they would say uh, right off the bat, these are great, but I can't sell them in my store for that much. And we kept hearing that over and over again. We had some orders at the show, but we quickly realized that if we ever wanted to make an impact. Uh, in terms of volume and sort of growth, we had to lower our pricing, and we did. Um, there are a lot of things that went into that, um, including the fact that we're becoming a little more efficient at making these, and we're able to cost uh, to, to to save some costs here and there. Um, but indeed, once we not only that we lowered the pricing, but here's the important part. We didn't lower the pricing on all of them. So our range still kind of bottoms out at about $38 uh, suggested retail. But we added more low-end items. So now your customers can choose from more pricing. So they don't perceive you as being that $35 wooden toy company. They perceive you as being a company with a wide pricing uh, range. And they can sort of pick and choose um, according to their needs and their customer base and what they think it will sell and move well in their store. Mm, that makes a lot of sense that you don't want to discount, not discount, but you don't want to lower the price for everything, but and but offer some entry-level pricing for the economics of your wholesale, people that are buying from you wholesale. So how do you determine what should be priced at a lower, you know, entry level pricing versus something that's on the higher end, like your, your almost $40 product. So uh, again, I'm caveating this by saying that this depends on everybody's product line. Mm -hmm. Some folks might be better served by a single price across your line for ease of, um, marketing or, or sales. But in our case, uh, for example, we noticed early on that one of the popular styles at the time we only had six, um, was our orange racer, which is the very first design that was created by the way. Um, has a bit of a, of a sort of, um, how should I put it? classicness to it. It's an orange race car with two black stripes. It, it's pretty <laughs> iconic in a way. Um, so that product was selling well. It also happens to be one of the simplest to make as far as our manufacturing process goes. So we focused on that and we said, all right, what would it take to sell this? And we kind of pulled out a thin air. It was selling for $29.99. And we said, we can't sell this for $27.99. You'd have to make a significant statement in terms of affordability. And by the way, our mantra is that we offer great design at, at an affordable price point. So there, there used to be some expensive, really pricey wood toys that are beautiful. Uh, there, there's a couple of brands that try that, but in the $60 to $70 range, it really becomes a shelf item. Mm. Uh, so we didn't want to be in that area, by the way. So after some discussions, uh, we started a um, spring offer in the spring of 2015. And we said, all right, um, during this time for select retailers, we did a little mailing. Um, for select retailers, we're offering the following price points. So essentially, we went from 30 and 35 for our two items. We went to 25 and 30. So... 
you know, in in retail lingo, it was twenty four ninety five and twenty nine ninety five. And once we did that, we saw an immediate uh, jump in volume. Um, and you know, we figured, you know, this is it. This is the right amount. Um, so the last thing we had to do was to preserve our margins on our end, of course. So what we did is <clears throat> we went to our suppliers and we said, what would it take for you to hit these price points? And while we, uh, we don't, we're not quite there yet because volume has, has yet to reach those kind of really high tier, uh, levels, um, we agreed on an order size that would allow them to reduce the cost a little bit to us. Um, and that in turn allowed us to find some savings. You know, you order once, um, you have a big shipment that allowed us to save on the shipping logistics, which up until then were completely killing us. Um, and this way we're able to, uh, preserve margins. We gave up a little bit of, of margins, true, but, I think in the long term that move was well justified because of the increased uh, the increase in volume. Mm. So were you just testing out this pricing even though you didn't have the the cost where you wanted it initially just to see if there was a a market at that price point? Correct. So essentially we ran this test, right? The product was the same. We had paid for it the same and we said, "All right, instead of offering it for $30 retail, we're going to offer it for 24.95 retail." So, yes, when we took that move, it was a test. And once we saw that the test came back with positive results, then we went back to our manufacturer. We had already started some conversations early on about volume mm-hmm. and reduced costs, and we knew that <clears throat> we would put pull the trigger on that and put the the lower prices into effect and then kind of work backwards from there. Yeah. I like that. So you basically tested a lower price point, saw a jump in volume and kind of, I guess, estimated uh, how big of an increase that, that will be if you're able to kind of do this at scale, went to the manufacturer and got, got that price, got your cost down to a point where it made sense for you to sell it at that lower price point. And then you worked with them on how much volume they needed to to fulfill that. That makes a lot of sense. That's um, right. So you, um, let's talk about the very beginning of finding manufacturer. You said that it took you twelve months to find somebody that was going to initially make it at the price that that you that you needed it to be at the point. So what was that like? You know, twelve months is a, is a long time of kind of searching for. Uh, maybe not a long time for finding manufacturer. I've heard this similar case with other entrepreneurs, but for somebody out there that is just at the very beginning of starting their business and is looking for a manufacturer, 12 months, like how do you survive that time of thinking like, man, is this product ever going to happen? Because it seems like we can't find somebody to make it for us. It was, um, it was not an easy time. First of all, I, was, um, I still had a um, full-time job. Um, so I was doing this, uh, on the side as a, as a kind of a moonlighting gig, weekends and nights, mm-hmm. lots of weekends and lots of nights. Um, but it does get a little discouraging at some point because you feel that you're not making any progress. So you have this idea that by now, you know, is viable. You've ran some numbers on your own. So you're coming up with, let's say 84 and a half cents in material costs. 
and then XYZ. And then you keep getting these prices that are absolutely outside of your price range. And all these cliches about American manufacturing and how we lost our way and we don't know how to make stuff, we're like, holy moly, this is kind of true. So how that was like was I would research, I would identify these these woodworking shops, either from word of mouth, online, I went to some fairs, maker fairs and all that. And what I found amazing is that people were super excited about the product. They wanted to take it on. They just could not make it worth their while financially. Um, and the process is slow, right? You find someone, you send you send a package, you kind of put your eggs in that basket, they take some time, they come back with questions, you answer the questions, they scratch their heads a little more, and then like three weeks later, you're like, no. So it's, it's slow, and it's painful, and you do it for wood, in our case, for metal parts, for plastic, and for rubber, which is what the components are for our toys. And all I can say is just... Uh, persist. Again, it was a little discouraging, um, but it, it's, it's like one of those typical stories. If the door is locked, just go around, enter through the window, go through the, I don't know, through the smokestack. Do um, whatever you can. Keep pushing um, until you find the right answer. You keep asking the same question uh-huh. until somebody, somebody finally says, yes, I can do this, which is what you want. Yeah. So there was a lot of back and forth uh, between you when you work with these manufacturers to figure it out if it made sense to work with them or not. So if you were to do it again, and I, I'm assuming you, you're probably going through this again anyway, of uh, finding manufacturer, would you, would you recommend that the listeners out there be prepared with certain details or facts? Like what do they need to start a conversation off so that this can be sped up a little bit more and reduce the back and forth? Or is it even possible to reduce the back and forth? I think it's possible. Of course, you have to dedicate more time. It took me a year because I wasn't doing this full time. So, you know, there would be sometimes a week before I would start a new effort. So 50 weeks go by fairly quickly. Again, I I contacted probably over 100 shops uh, during this this period of time. So I think what helps is, by the way, I was getting more efficient towards the end. I was kind of learning how to read their reactions. Um, But of course, uh, have a full um, set of drawings or some sort of uh, documentation for your product, whatever that may be. Again, have a clear understanding of how your product should be made and constructed. Because think about it, whatever decisions may seem obvious to you because you've been working on it into your baby and you've been in it for so long, Someone that just gets a drawing on their desk and they have like five more quotes to do that hour, they will gonna they're gonna look at it real quick and they may skim through it like oh this is gonna cost me so much and um, try to make their job as easy as possible. Um, you know, follow up with a phone call. Um, I was getting these really weird questions in the beginning that were showing that people did not understand how to make and and cut some of these wood wood pieces and. I realized that I had to include some diagrams with the actual technical drawings that would explain our thinking, mine and my partners, of how to make these efficiently. You know, in our cases, make a long profile in that shape, cut that down into short pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So, again, I think it helps if you can give them uh, an understanding of what you're thinking and what your ideas are. 
they may come back with something better than your suggestion, but it definitely helps to um, describe what your path has been so far uh, and the hurdles that you've ran into and you've sort of, these are the solutions that you came up with. You were saying earlier that you had to teach them how to create the the products. Is that what is that what you mean? Like what you just said, or was there more involved with uh, educating them on all these different ways to put together the product? It got really involved. It's it's um, it's a teaching process that we had to go a learning process that we had to go through ourselves, and then we had to teach all these suppliers how to do it. Let me give you an example. Um, we had early on a this so-called the GT racers and the police car. The GT racer had all sort of positive angles, what they're called. Basically, you don't have any inward cuts. So with a bit of skill and some geometry knowledge, you can make that object on any table saw, which is a $250 tool at any hardware store. The police car had inward cuts, which are more complicated in the woodworking world to do. And there's more ways than one to do it. Um, but we had found, my partner had devised this contraption where you would kind of put the wood sort of facing down, kind of like in a juicer, sort of standing upright and running it over a blade sideways while moving, whatever. Pretty complex stuff, but it worked. It took only about three, five seconds to make those cuts once you had the contraption done. So we realized that in order to get a positive response and get them to understand that this could be done that way, we actually had to construct that device ourselves, the jig, out of, you know, um, one inch thick plexi. Um, We did YouTube videos. We sent them links to these YouTube videos so they could understand how the process works. And um, we, we saw an improvement. And eventually we got this to be... Um, sort of implemented in mass production. Actually, we had one of our suppliers use our one of our early test jigs. We thought they were going to make a new jig, but they used that for like thousands of units. So we're like, That's whoa, funny. that was that was a pretty good jig that we created uh, just for testing. Yeah, you guys should create that next as your next product. It's just it's funny that you create a product <laughs> to create your product. Um, cool. So let's move on to your Kickstarter campaign. So you guys had a goal of raising $30,000 and ended up raising many times that $118,781 from 1,177 backers. Were you, what was that like? Were you shocked at how, how much money was raised at the end of the day? We were. This is actually our second campaign. Um, the first campaign raised 102,000, and our goal was, I believe, only 20,000. Um, it's it's really interesting. I heard a lot of people say that it's a very emotional experience, and you know, you read about it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's an emotional experience. It's great, but you go live, you kind of chug along, and then something happens, and then people find out about it, and it just takes off, and then you see the the backer sort of notifications collecting at your on your screen. And I can't quite describe that. I was on my phone at work. It was like 3 p.m. Um, and I can't thank the Kickstarter crew enough. They did email us out to their huge base. Um, once that happened, we just kind of jumped through the roofs, uh, through the roof in terms of views and, and backers. So I was 
I was, it was in the afternoon. I was at work. It was like a Wednesday or something. And I see my phone going crazy. And for the next hour, I was like on cloud nine. It was indescribable. It was a really, really great feeling. And it's that feeling of, and I go back to this now, validation, knowing that people get what you're trying to do. Um, but anyway, so that was the first campaign. And we did about five times our initial goal, which we had engineered to a bare minimum of, of necessity. Um, and that really convinced us that, that this really has legs now. Mm. Yeah, so let's um, dive into. Uh, let's talk about the first one, actually. So, what did you guys? You, you said that the Kickstarter crew emailed your campaign out to their 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 list, which sounds like the holy grail of succeeding on Kickstarter. What do you think you did uh, beforehand to get that kind of attention? Did you already meet your goal by the time they did this, or like what do you think attracted them to to um, supporting you in that way? So I'm I'm going to be completely honest about this. So we're completely uh, complete newbies um, on this. Um, we we were on track to meet our goal, sort of, kind of barely. We had twenty thousand, and I can talk about how we came up to that to that amount. By the way, it's just it's a completely separate conversation. But the one thing that I did again, this is us doing it as a moonlighting gig nights and weekends. So we had very little time to prepare in the media effort that should come with something like this. So our media effort was limited to, again, your your network of friends. Uh, there's a couple of hundred people there, uh, friends of friends. Um, and, and you do this in a very expected kind of informal way. Hey guys, look, this we've been working on this for a while. You kind of give them the backstory. If you haven't talked to them for a while, the people who know you, they already know you've been kind of laboring for a while on this, so they know it's important to you. So they will support you. But I think the most sort of um, important aspect should be is, look, don't don't necessarily back us. We're not asking you guys for money, but just tell a friend or five friends about it. Maybe they're interested. Maybe they're into wood toys and wood cars and muscle vintage vehicles or whatever it is. So um, we recognize that early on, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have as many people know about your stuff. But in a, I think in a humble and how should I put it? Tasteful way, like mm, not selling them or pitching them on on buying it. I think that's terrible, I, and I don't know how to go around that because in some form or fashion. And again, this was 2013 Kickstarter, which is a different community and animal in some ways from 2016 Kickstarter. But um, sort of beating people over the head with your message is not necessarily. Uh, going to get you more, more results. I, I don't know how to put this. It's a fine balance. Sometimes being super pushy will get you results. Sometimes will completely turn people off. Um, we did the sort of kind of more delicate, like, hey, you know, if you like, sort of tell a friend, tell a neighbor um, about it. Um, and, and that was kind of it. So by design, we're not very aggressive um, in our outreach, um, early on, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how that worked out. Um, the one thing that we did do, um, which I think helped us tremendously. And, and to this day, I, I can't thank this friend enough. Um, I have a designer friend. He occasionally writes for a popular design blog 
And he did come through. I called him literally two nights before the campaign was going to go live. And I said, dude, look, I, I have this campaign. As you know, I've been laboring over it for a long time. What do you think? So I sent him some pictures that night. He looked at them on his phone. I was like, this stuff is great. I'm going to write about it. And he did. And that article got picked up by other, some other blogs. And what I think happens is there's traffic, outside traffic coming into your campaign. And that starts to sort of float your campaign up within the Kickstarter community. And that's when people, some other people start to notice it. And at that point, it's all about the strength of the product. Because that's the other aspect of the equation. Um, you can do a lot of outreach, but if the product is not strong, that outreach will not translate into actual people supporting you financially. It's, it's a really interesting um, um, part of this. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That you, I mean, obviously, you have to have a great product to carry it across the finish line. Promotion and marketing can only get you so far that you have right. to actually have something that people actually want. Uh, so once you uh, were able to break this goal, uh, the initial goal for your first campaign, did you promote it any differently after that? Like, what did anything change about your strategy with Kickstarter once you knew that you had raised the funds? Kickstarter at that time was kind of an open and shut case. We, we didn't know how to extract more out of it, which in mm -hmm. hindsight, again, was a bit of a mistake, but just our limitations at the time did not allow us to explore that. You know, there's, there's ways to sort of extend your presence on the Kickstarter platform. Uh, there's a lot of folks that come to your campaign after it ended. Um, so we started capitalizing on that, by the way. So that goes into e-commerce. So dovetails nicely into that. Um, and the, but the one thing that actually did, um, did happen, and I'm very grateful for that, uh, Kickstarter themselves as a crew of people, they're, they're, they're very interesting and very, I think, um, they're, they're trying to do things the absolute right way. So we started kind of having a, a, a connection sort of outside of the campaign. And they do that um, oftentimes. They help creators, they reach out, uh, they try to help as best as they can. Being in Brooklyn and us being in Brooklyn, uh, it helped. We showed up at a few uh, events that they organized, so we started to kind of know, uh, know the people there. And I, I think, um, which is, you know, again, it's a particular thing of us being in New York City, um, not available to, to obviously a lot of folks out there. Um, but it, it kind of allowed us from Candy Lab to understand uh, what Kickstarter is doing for the creator community and for the designer community. So we're kind of tailoring and, and sort of, um, how should I put it, trying to take advantage of, of what they have to offer on that end. Yeah, I, mean, I guess the lesson here is just, I think with what you're saying now and what you're saying about how you guys were able to promote it early on is just to use your network and don't necessarily be pitching or selling right off the bat. Just use your network in a sense to get them to get to know them and get them to know what you're working on, but don't you know, actively try to sell them on something right away. Um, so you were saying earlier about how 2013 Kickstarter is different than 2016 Kickstarter, and you also mentioned that uh, you can do th more things now, maybe because of your experience and maybe because of new features on Kickstarter to extract more out of it. Can you t say a little bit more about that? Like, what? How would you approach Kickstarter differently if you launched today versus back in 2013? So the one difference that we implemented in on the second campaign, which uh, ran last year, last summer, 
uh, as opposed to the one that we did two years prior, was the fact that we used a third-party uh, platform called BackerKit um, that allows you to handle the uh, what's called a survey process at the end of the campaign when you collect information from your uh, backers, from your community, and also allows you to, to sort of very quickly put up a, a somewhat of a virtual store uh, right there um, within the BackerKit platform. I don't think it's extremely, um, at least for us, it wasn't a um, easy setup just because it does get complex with um, with all the options you have, the particulars of every campaign. I think the platform is incredibly well made and it allowed us to basically keep running after the campaign ended to some extent. Um, I think there's a lot to talk there because you want to be uh, truthful and you want to reward the folks that came to your campaign during the campaign was live, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's any harm in in sort of still giving people access to some of these rewards under maybe different terms. That's up to uh, each and every creator. Um, the first campaign we noticed that a lot of folks would reach out to us and say, hey, I'm sorry I missed your campaign. Can I still get X, Y, Z? And we we're like, no, sorry, it's kind of closed. It's done. Um, and then we we're like wondering, why are we missing out on all these um, opportunities? Plus, you kind of feel you're letting your supporters down just because they came a week late or three days late or three hours late. Um so that's what we implemented. Um, there was a way even early on to, right before the campaign ends, to put a link to your web store early on. Um, essentially, right before the campaign ended, you would paste a link to, to, your, to your online uh, uh, store, and you could direct people there if you so desired. Um, you know, and that's not necessarily easy or quick for a lot of first time creators. Uh, so that's, that's why these, uh, third party platforms would, would make things easier for, for a creator to do. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. Cause I'm, I'm looking at your, your first Kickstarter campaign it says, it says order here, click on it, clicking on it takes you to a backer kit, uh, page. And I guess that's where they would be able to buy more, or buy certain things under different terms, uh, to extend basically the campaign. Uh, and make more use of that traffic that's still coming in. That's so, right. So the first campaign, you had over 1,200 people that backed it. Second campaign uh, had over almost 1,200 people again backing it. So so once you were able to get these orders in, and you got hinted at this earlier about the logistics of everything, tell us about what's involved in like fulfilling all those orders in basically all at one time. It's um it's not as easy as one may think, um, especially again. I think three years ago there were fewer options in terms of third-party apps that would that would help with um, even printing labels, which sounds maybe in this day and age, oh, you should be able to print labels quickly, but it wasn't so at the time. Um, Necessarily, I mean, again, I don't think it was dramatically different, but all these uh, third-party apps are kind of clunky. They didn't always work, working with stamps.com and all that. There's a learning curve. That's what I'm getting at. We had no prior experience, so for us it was a pretty steep learning curve to get a crash course on shipping rates, 
on labor and handling rates for a warehouse because you don't want to do that out of your living room. I mean, you could, but, or your office space. Um, so we kind of did a combination. Uh, we had a uh, third party handle some of those for us. We had some that we did ourselves and I literally had some that I did myself uh, at night out of my living room um, just because, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Um, but the, the lesson that we took from that was that there's a lot of unexpected costs that you can run into during this process. And I, I couldn't stress this enough um, that, again, if this is new, if, if a creator is new or an entrepreneur is new to this, do a lot of homework on this. There's hidden fees, there's hidden costs that you absolutely want to avoid. And even if you have everything covered or you think you have everything covered, there are things that can still go wrong. For example, if you send, um, let's say 50 packages, international packages with a slight error in the zip code or address, which again is something that happens. You don't control that. The addresses are entered automatically by their respective recipients. You print out a file, you print the labels, you ship it out. It's not flagged. It gets into UPS's hands or USPS or DHL or whatever it is, and they don't get delivered. And then you run into a situation where the package was sent. You have been charged for this. You have sent the goods, but it doesn't, for whatever reasons, it doesn't make it into your supporters' hands, into your customer, essentially. And, of course, that's not a good situation. They still want their stuff. You still have paid for that. So you have to kind of follow through, go through this, deliver. And um, in the end, it will be a pretty significant cost that can add up uh, for all these little, apparently small errors. Um, so I, I think that's something to be um, to be kept in mind. Again, not everybody has a background in logistics. And this could end up being one of those kind of blindsiding um, issues that that could eat up a lot of time and and financial effort. Yeah, I mean, I bet there you sound like there's a couple other um, unexpected costs other than obviously a big one of having misprinted labels due to, you know, customer error. Are there any other things that uh, you didn't expect, any costs that you didn't expect that ended up, you know, cutting into your margins? Sure, there's a few. Um, for example, one of them had to do with time, and it's 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 on our it's on our end, right? So you promise a delivery date for your Kickstarter backers, and for for example, for the first campaign, we promised a Christmas delivery, and <clears throat> things in production sometimes you get delayed. Um, there's slight error that adds up. You have to address it super expeditiously. Uh, another one pops up. You don't address that. It takes a week and then another week and whatever. All of a sudden you have to, uh, and we, again, it's, it's a choice we made. We air freighted some of the goods um, to JFK so we could start delivering those to our customers before Christmas. And <clears throat> a couple of things can and may happen. First of all, shipping gets absolutely crazy starting like October 15 and it goes exponentially up um, right around the holiday season. We had a, a shipment that we paid dearly for to, to get these to some folks that really wanted it by Christmas. 
and uh, it sat in customs in JFK for 18 days. We finally got delivery of it on the 21st of December. So we we slept for like two hours on the 22nd uh, just to get it out. Uh, and I literally drove around the city in, in some local neighborhoods and I actually delivered things out of my station wagon, which wow. is actually kind of a fun part. But um, that was a huge cost. You're like Santa. I was literally sent. <laughs> so uh, my little Subaru was uh, was being uh, Santa's sleigh at that That's time. Funny. It was it was actually fun. It was actually the pleasant part. I, um, we were really exhausted, but we we're kind of happy. So that's an expense that we chose to take on. We knew how much it was going to cost. We knew why we did it, and we did it. But it will cut into your margins. Um, another aspect that can cut into your margins will be hidden warehousing and sort of handling fees. And I, I, again, I can't stress this enough. You have to understand exactly what it will cost to get the packages out and get it in writing. You have to get a contract. You have to get numbers. You have to get costs for corrugated boxes, for filler, for every single thing that you can think of that you may not control. You have to get it in writing because you're going to get a bill for you know, $1,500 for foam peanuts. And you're like, why foam peanuts? Why isn't this not included? Well, we didn't mention, did I mention you need keys to start your car? So um, it's, again, I think you have to be very precise and very hard about it ultimately, especially if you're starting a new relationship with one of these providers. Um, And you have to ask a lot of questions to make sure that nothing kind of slips through. Because the problem is, a small error in this environment will get multiplied thousands of times. So if you have Mm. a thousand backers or 3000 backers or whatever it is, and everything will happen very fast, it will get fulfilled in a week or 10 days or whatever. You're not going to have time to react. And they, sometimes they just go ahead and do it. And at the end they're going to say, well, we had to buy extra tape or we had an extra packing fee of 49 cents per item handled. And if you handle 15,000 items, because let's say one of your backers gets an average of six, uh, depending on what your structure of rewards will be, uh, you're going to end up with a huge bill, which then you're going to spend time to untangle. Uh, you're going to get these 30-page bills for all sorts of charges. It's it's something that I think, again, logistics uh, need would need to be well understood before getting on this fulfillment process. Mm. Is this something that you think that everybody needs to be aware of, even if you're starting out? Or is it something that you should invest a lot of time in once you start operating at scale, like, you know, in the thousands like you guys uh, are doing? That's a very good question. I... I'm not sure if this is something that we've hit up against um, and most people can avoid it. Frankly, I don't know how it can be avoided unless you really have a solid partner. And this is totally possible. I understand that. You have a solid partner. Nothing goes wrong or very little things go wrong. There's unexpected stuff that's kept to a minimum. And then this stuff just runs. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that exists. But, um, again, I think preparing for the worst will help because if stuff doesn't go according to plan, like I said, a small error will get multiplied thousands of times and um, you'll end up 
um, you know, sort of being responsible for those costs. I think, I think it's the same as with uh, manufacturing. You kind of have to know how your product is put together. You also, I think, have to know how your product gets into your customers' hands, ultimately. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense about how you need to be prepared for it because even even more so than the manufacturing side because this logistics is a thing that's on a timeline, right? It's like a ticking time. You can't just take your time to learn or to react to it. It has to happen as soon as possible, especially in your situation where you guys are shipping right around the holiday season. People wanted it before Christmas. You can't just take your time and try to work your way through all the hidden costs. You have to react and get things done quickly. And when you want things done quickly, it usually means you have to pay more money. So uh, I think it definitely makes sense to be prepared, especially when things are on a timeline like fulfillment. Um, so I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, cool. So in terms of you know running the store itself, um, are there? I know you mentioned Backer Kit for Kickstarter. Are there any other tools or, or apps that you use to help you run your your business either on Shopify or outside of Shopify? Yeah, there's um, <clears throat> there's a little sort of um, ecosystem of of apps that we've built um and and each sort of serves a specific purpose um so i'm just going to throw out the names that we use and please don't think that i'm endorsing these in any way they no, just please. happen yeah. to work for us well the listeners they, they love hearing about what tools uh, other entrepreneurs use so if, yeah feel free to share as many as you can and so, you know, I mentioned um, logistics, right? So logistics is one thing, but also managing your stuff internally, I think, is also equally important. Also managing your billing is equally important. Again, these may not seem like critical things, but unfortunately, unless you have someone who does this out of the box for you, bookkeeping can become quite a quite a hassle and a headache. So we use QuickBooks. They're just a giant platform. We use QuickBooks Online for bookkeeping and invoicing. But we ran into some problems with that. They're a very complex platform. I think they're trying to do a lot of things. Um, and as always, when you kind of pile on features, it stopped working for us. And I will be very specific with that. We could not split ship orders. In, in other words, if a client will place an order for a wholesale uh, set of items, and we only had, let's say, 80% of those in stock, splitting the order, per se, was was becoming very time-consuming for us because you have to generate two invoices. As a rule, you only should invoice stuff that you send, not basically invoice in advance. That's the surest way to kind of piss off a customer. Um, and we would, um, we would find ourselves juggling multiple invoices. So long story short, we've moved into a management inventory system called SOS Inventory, which is a, a it functions as an app to QuickBooks, but it kind of works as a standalone. So it manages your, your components, your suppliers, your locations. Like for example, if you make jam, it would manage how many jars, how many lids you have, how many bags of sugar, how many labels of a certain kind you have. And and we kind of love that. We're kind of geeking out all over it. But it allows us to have everything at a glance, what's in stock, where, 
what the sales sort of entered are. And then when you're done with all that, you create an invoice from this piece of software and it automatically links to your QuickBooks online account, which you can then use to receive payment. Um, so that's one big step that we took in terms of managing our stuff because shuffling Google Docs uh, and Excel files kind of gets tiring at one point and you start to lose track as you grow and you add items. Uh, so managing inventory was one. The online sort of managing of, of billing and accounting is another. Um, Shopify has been absolutely great for us. We've looked at a number of platforms and we decided for this. The, the one thing that <clears throat> works very well for us is the fact that Shopify has an ecosystem. So now we use a wholesale app that is currently active on a monthly basis and we use a pre-order app that's also on a monthly basis so these two features alone um uh, resolve a lot of issues for us Sorry, do you know do you know the names of those apps one is called pre-order manager and the other one is called wholesale hero cool then we use order printer which is kind of like a little tiny thing that is just an aesthetic thing we love it because it um, it works with um, generating the nice sort of looking uh, invoices and packing slips. Uh, then we use ShipStation, which I absolutely love. Um, we use ShipStation in general with our physical warehouse location. Um, we're looking at shoppable Instagram um, from your pick, <clears throat> you are pick. And, um, you know, I think... I think there's always more, for example, SOS Inventory, this app that I'm mentioning, uh, is about to close a, um, a loop and sync directly with Shopify, which would be amazing for us uh, because then Shopify would talk to our inventory management system, which then would talk to our accounting app. Uh, we're going to install QuickBooks for Shopify as well. Um, and I think when we do all this, what emerges is a very interesting ecosystem of, of apps that talk to each other, which again was not even close three years ago, which doesn't seem like a long time, but none of this was available three years ago or very little of it. Um, and it allows us, and I think this is mind blowing. It allows us to punch way above our weight in terms of systems integration. Um, I hear stories from large companies that have multi-million dollars in sales and they're still struggling with Google Docs and managing their inventories and their wholesale things. And I'm like, we pay like $250 a month in app subscriptions and we got all that covered now. And I think it's unbelievable. It's so, uh, it fulfills the promise of the web and sort of true democracy of, of software, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Cool. So thanks so much for your time, Vlad. So CandyLabToys.com, C-A-N-D-Y-L-A-B-T-O-Y-S.com is the store, is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? We have a pretty hopping, nice Instagram feed that we focus a lot on. And uh, we will have new products that we're going to launch via Kickstarter as before to kind of reserve that surprise effect to our, to our followers. So check us out periodically on Instagram and our, web, and our website. We will um, announce timely um, so, you, so everybody can sort of see what we're up to and what's coming up. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll link all the uh, social media things uh, in the show notes. Again, thanks so much for your time, Vlad. 
Thank you so much, Felix. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.